We return now to the Gospel according to Matthew and pick up right where we left off with the first verse of chapter 15. While you're turning there, I want to encourage everybody, and I mean everybody, to think about how you can be involved in our Wild Game Dinner outreach. It's just one month. It's one month from yesterday until our event. Okay, so that's how fast it's coming up. It is no longer just a men's event. Years gone by, it was a men's event, but now it's open to everybody and anybody. And you don't have to even care about hunting or wild game food to be invited. You just have to care about people. Just like Keith always says about our Good News Cruise, it's not about the cars. Well, it's not about the meat, right? It's about people and introducing people to Jesus. So there's that list of ways to get involved in your bulletin that Joel was talking about. I'd like for everybody to pray about doing at least one thing on that list. Some of you are going to want to do three or four, but everybody can do at least one thing. And if everybody did at least one thing on that list, especially pray, this thing will come off and will reach people for Christ. Remember, this is all of our thing. It's not just Jamie's thing or Andy's thing or, or even the, a men's thing anymore. This is our church's thing to reach outdoor type people for Christ. So it's been a couple of weeks since we were together in the Gospel of Matthew. You might remember, however, that chapter 14 had two major miracles in it. Jesus fed a gigantic crowd with just five loaves and two fish. And then he walked on water. Do you remember that? Both of those are amazing miracles, and both of them pointed to his true identity. Remember, the Gospel of Matthew is a theological biography. The central point of the Gospel is to establish the identity of the central subject. Who is this Jesus? We saw last time that when Jesus was walking on the water, he says, Don't be afraid. It is I. Ego eimi. I am. And his disciples worshipped him and they said, truly, you are the Son of God. They could tell by his miracles. When they reached the shore, they landed at a place called Genesaret. And the people there recognized who Jesus was too. And people came from all over to bring him their sick and even just to touch the edge of his cloak and be healed. So you might think that when chapter 15 begins... The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, having heard what Jesus had just done, what Jesus was up to, might come to him and ask if they could be his disciples. You might think that they would, having heard the stories of Jesus' teaching and miracles about all the people fed, about walking on the water, about the people healed, they might come and bow down before him and recognize them, him as their Messiah the promise-anointed leader who was to come. You might think that, but you'd be wrong. That's not what happened at all. It's, it's what should have happened, but that's not what happened. Well, the leaders did come, but they came to oppose Jesus, not receive Him. Let me tell you what the title is for today's message. We're going to cover verses 1-20 through 20 this morning under this title, Worthless worship worthless worship jesus doesn't pull any punches in today's story he tells it like it is and it ain't pretty at one point in verse 9 jesus will say quoting isaiah that some people worship god in 
vain. They're worshiping people. They're religious people. They're people busy doing things that have some connection with God. They're God people. But it's actually, Jesus says it's actually worthless. It's worship, but it's worthless worship. They worship me in vain. Oh, friends, I don't want that to be said of you and me. Because it's not just Sunday morning worship here that he's talking about. He's not just talking about going to church. He's talking about the 24-7 kind of worship that we call the Christian life. He's talking about a fake godliness. A fake pretend relationship with God. In today's terms, we would say a worthless Christianity I would hate for that to be true of me or anyone here that I care about. So this is important. We need to read this and to consider how much to how to make sure that the opposite is true for you and me. That our Christianity is not worthless, that our godliness is real, that our worship is worth something. Do you want that? I know I do. So let's pray and then let Matthew show us the way in his chapter 15. Let's pray together. Lord, I hate to get to my funeral and for the verdict to be, well, he talked a good game, but he wasn't the real deal. I'd hate for anybody here To have some kind of a form of godliness, but lack the substance. I pray, Father, that you would get down to our hearts and do whatever it takes. That our Christianity would be worth something. I pray you would do this as we read the Gospel of Matthew and as we apply it to our life. Help us to see what's here to receive it, to have it implanted in our souls, to bear good fruit. I can't make that happen, Lord. You've got to do it. Use me if you can. Work around me if you must, but speak to our hearts today. We pray in the name that we've sung of this morning, Jesus. Amen. There's trouble brewing. It's in the air. If you've been paying attention as we've gone through Matthew, you can see it on both sides. Jesus has been critical of the Jewish religious authorities, especially the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they have not liked it one bit. They have felt threatened. And they've even begun to quietly plot the downfall of Jesus. And it's only going to get worse. It's going to come to a head. It's going to escalate. And you know where this book is heading, right? Here they send a delegation to Jesus to ostensibly ask a question, but it's really an accusation. Look with me at verse 1 of Matthew 15. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, that sounds like a hygiene question, but it's not. Okay? They aren't asking why Jesus' disciples don't wash up before dinner. 
This isn't about germs. It, it isn't about bacteria. It's about ritual cleanness and ritual uncleanness. The Jews had developed some traditions about rituals that they thought you should go through before you ate something. It wasn't in the law. This is not in the Old Testament. It's not in the Torah. The law said that the priest needed to do a ritual cleansing before they served in the tabernacle or in the, in the temple. And the Pharisees had said, that's a great idea. We should all do it every time we eat. And so they came up with some, some rules. In time, there was an entire tractate in the Mishnah about how to do this the right way. And I thought I would uh, demonstrate this morning. I got this bowl out last night. Kurt was here and he said, did you get permission from Cindy to do water up on the stage? And I said, no, it's a lot easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. So, so I was reading about uh, how they did this and what the Mishnah said. Now, some of this was developed later, but this was the idea that was coming along. So good Jews were expected to perform ritual hand washing before, during, and after each meal. So like, okay, it's Thanksgiving We've gone about halfway. We ought to wash our hands again, right? Just to make sure. So the fir- person would first, I got my Trinity mug, repping Trinity again this week. The person would first pour water over his hands with the fingers pointing up and with the water reaching the wrist. And then he would point the finger down and pour the water again, this time allowing the water to drip off the fingers. If one mixed up this order or poured the water both times with the hands pointed up or down, your hands are still ritually unclean. You've got to go back and do it again. Each hand then had to be rubbed with the other, but... Oh, I did it the opposite way, didn't I? Yep. But you could not rub them until each hand was clean. Okay? Now, where, where did it say this in the law? That they're supposed to do this? What, what book? It's not in the law. But all the religious people were doing it. Jesus' disciples were not doing it. Okay, so is it good or bad to do? Oh, okay. Well, they certainly thought that it was bad to not do it, right? So they come after Jesus. The the Pharisees said there's something wrong with them. And, And. And if there's something wrong with them, what does that mean? There's something wrong with their rabbi, right? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. What's wrong with them? What's wrong with you, Jesus? Your worship is all wrong. Don't you want to worship the right way when you eat? So how's Jesus going to answer this? How's Jesus going to defend his disciples. He's going to come to their defense, right? Well, he doesn't defend. Instead, he attacks. Jesus goes right on the offensive. Look at verse 3. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Whoa. For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he's not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Well, that escalated quickly. 
There's a conflict here. Jesus answers their accusation with an accusation of His own. He accuses them of nullifying the Word of God for the sake of their traditions. What's He mean by that? Now, He sets aside the washing stuff for a minute. Kind of. Right? Because He's actually still going to... He's still kind of talking about this. But He redirects their attention to something else for a minute. He says, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother. Now, is that in the Bible? Honor your father and mother? Where, where, do I, where would I find that? It's one of the big ten, right? One of the ten commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. That's something God did tell them to do. And Exodus 21 takes it even further, which Jesus quotes, anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death under the Old Covenant. This is serious stuff straight from God. Nobody's arguing with it. right? But some people do try to wiggle out of it. Look at verse 5. But you say, God says this, but you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me as a gift devoted to God, he's not to honor his father with it. This is a practice called Corban. It's really tricky. Let's say that you're angry with your folks and you don't want to use any of your money to take care of them in their old age. What should you do? Never mind about the law. What it said about honoring your father and mother. We we can get around that. Let's have you do the Corbin thing. Let's have you devote a big amount of your money into a religious, irrevocable trust fund called Corbin. This money is no longer mine, you say. It's now devoted to God. It's devoted to the temple. So when you die, where does the money go? To the temple, right? Now, can you still use the money before you die? Yeah, for limited things. Not for helping other people, but there's certain things you're allowed to do with that money. Can't help other people, not even mom and dad, because it's devoted to God. Look how godly I am. I have devoted my money to God. Sorry, mom and dad. It's tough for you, I know. But it's the price you pay for being godly. You see how nefarious this is? You see what they're doing here? Jesus did. Jesus says, verse 6, Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now it's not bad to have a tradition. Traditions can be really good things. But not if they get in the way of true obedience. They're all focused in on washing their hands. And they're using even traditions to wiggle out from God's commands. Traditions are bad if they take the place of God's Word. Now, this teaching, I think, raises a few good questions. For example, can I tell the difference between what is just a tradition and what is commanded by God? Can you do that? I mean, which things in your life are just hand-washing? Not in and of itself bad. Is it, would it be all right if we did this before we ate every time? Sure. For the right reasons and the right time, with the right heart, knock yourself out. Do it. But what other things are things God says we must do? 
I think many people don't know their Bibles good enough to tell the difference. In one of the commentaries I read this week, the author said, In a church I know well, a deacon I respect in most other matters, rebuked a person for wearing work clothes to church, even though she had just gotten off work. Another leader in the same church had gone unrebuked for sleeping with a woman with whom he was not married. Now, which of those are commands from God? Does the Bible say we should dress up for church? No. The Bible says we need to dress modestly at church, but it doesn't say anything about what kind of clothes we need to wear to church. But does God's Word tell us about sexual relations and where they belong? That they all should take place within the covenant of marriage and the wedding bed should not be defiled? Can we tell the differences between traditions and the Word of God? Another question this raises is, are we making excuses to keep from obeying God? Because that's what this was, right? This wasn't just that they had, didn't know the difference between the categories. They were using one category to trump the other. They were trying to wiggle out of keeping God's commands while promoting their own supposed godliness. Do you and I do that? Are we always on the lookout for loopholes, for excuses? We love our excuses in our American culture, don't we? It's in my DNA. My parents really, they really messed me up. He makes me so mad. That's why I had to do that thing. If you had the schooling I had, you'd act like this too. That was the alcohol speaking. That was my depression speaking. Not really me. It's her fault. It's his fault. Here the excuses are religious. It's what everyone else does. It's what, it, this is what we were taught at church. I have to do it. My religion says so. It's using one part of your religion to do something that the Bible actually says the opposite on. Jesus calls us out on our excuses. He says, no, no. You don't get to play that game. One other key question I think this raises is simply, do we honor our father and mother? That's one of those commands that seems really important if you're a father or a mother, but you don't think about so much when you're the child. How are you doing at that one? They don't have to be living to be honored. They don't even have to be honorable to be honored. There's a right way to do it even when they are dishonorable. But if they're living and they are honorable, it's all the more important to do it. And it's obviously not good enough to just say that you do it, but then not actually do it. There's a word for that, right? Saying you're going to do it and then not actually doing it. And Jesus uses it. It's the H word. He pulls it out in verse 7. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Isaiah 29, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. That's all they are. It's worthless worship. Hypocritical worship is worse than faulty worship. He says it's worthless. It's empty. It's void. It's vain. You take that to the bank and they say, 
this is paper money. It's counterfeit. It's, there's nothing, nothing to this. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. That's all it is. That's, that's all it ever, that's all that is. That's all they are. Yep, they go to church, but there's nothing inside. Friends, Jesus hates hypocrisy. Jesus hates hypocrisy. He doesn't hate religious people, but he hates fake religious people. If they talk the talk, but they don't what? Walk the walk. They go through all the motions. They go to church. They give money. They dress up with their bow tie. They show up. They sing the songs. But it's all outward. And the outward is more important to them than the inward. The outward always trumps the inward. So it's really just all fake. Look at verse 8 again. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? Their hearts are far from God. The truth about these folks is that they have far away hearts. Far away from the Lord. So here's what we need instead. We need close hearts. We need hearts that are truly close to God. We need to have a heart for His heart. Hearts that care about what God cares about. Hearts that want to please God no matter what, even when it's hard. Hearts that don't care what it looks like on the outside. They're going to do what God wants no matter what. That was a big part of the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Remember the Sermon on the Mount from last summer? The inside-out kingdom. It's so easy to get the outside cleaned up for a time and look good to other people. To look godly to other people. And for it to just be a big show. This is one of the dangers for all Christians, but especially for those in vocational ministry like myself. Pastors are tempted to build up a reputation for godliness and not actually be godly on the inside. Looking good. Sounding good. And missing what's really important. Close hearts. Hearts that draw near to God. How do you know if your heart is drawn near to God? How do you know if you have a close heart? Well, you can tell by your actions. You can tell by your actual obedience. You can tell by putting to death your excuses and doing what you know is the right thing to do. You can tell, in other words, by putting your money where your mouth is. You might be able to fool all the people some of the time. You might be able to fool some of the people all the time. You might even be able to fool yourself some of the time. But you can't fool God. Why would you want to? Let's put to death our fake religiosity and live out the real deal. I don't know about you, but I want to be the real deal. Now, Jesus has not actually changed the subject, okay? He's actually still talking about the washing. He's actually giving his answer to the question raised by the Pharisees in verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why do they do that? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Look at verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, Listen and understand, 
What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that's what makes him unclean. In other words, these guys over here have got it all wrong. It's not what you take in. It's what comes out that matters. It's not what you eat with unclean hands that defile you. It's fine to do your little ritual. Go ahead. If it helps you, great. But it doesn't do anything. It doesn't make anything happen. You can't like make the food unclean by touching it and then make you unclean by it going in you. Not really. It's what, it's, what you say that defiles you. It what com- it's what comes out of you that is clean or unclean. And they understood what he was saying. Look at verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And Jesus is like, Oh, they were? Good. Glad they got it. Verse 13, he replied, Every plant that my, father, my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Those are strong words. I'd hate it if Jesus said that about me. Jesus is saying that these Pharisees are weeds. Remember the parable of the wheat and the weeds? These guys, he says, are the weeds. I don't care if they're the leaders. I don't care if they're the ones in charge. I don't care if they have a reputation for being really godly. They aren't. Don't follow them. It'd be like the blind leading the blind. You heard that phrase before? That's Jesus. That's classic Jesus. Do I have to tell you how it will end up if the blind leads the blind? Jesus is saying, be careful who your leaders are. Be careful whom you follow. Be careful who you call as your pastor. Be careful who you listen to on the radio or podcasts or on the television. Be careful who you read. Not all pastors are good. Some are weeds. And one day the Lord is going to pull them up, he says, by the roots. Leave them before you blindly fall into a pit. Dump the fake pastors before someone gets hurt. So Peter still doesn't get it. But he knows to ask Jesus. Look at verse 15. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you so dull? Jesus asked him. (laughs) Poor Peter. Are you so dull? Truth is, Peter was. He didn't get it yet. Jesus didn't think this was much of a parable. He he meant it quite literally. Verse 17. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out the body? I hope I don't have to paint a picture for you. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Got it now? It's not unclean food that makes you unclean. Food by itself is not spiritual. 
It doesn't do anything to your spiritual state. What is spiritual? Your heart is. And what really matters is not what goes into you, but what, what's coming out. Now, that's kind of scary, actually. At first, you might be happy to hear that what really matters is not the outside, but what's on the inside, because you've seen a lot of Disney movies, right? So just follow your heart. It's going to be great. And then you find out what Jesus thinks about your heart. Find out how dirty your insides really are. In verse 19, Jesus basically lists the last of the last six commandments, the second table of the law. And he says that breaking them comes from our dirty hearts. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. Where did that come from? I didn't mean that. Don't know how I ended up there. Do you ever feel that way about your sin? I was confessing my sin to a friend this week and I said that I had backed into it. I didn't even realize how I'd gotten there. Well, Jesus knew all along. He knew it came from my heart. On our own, we have dirty hearts that lead to worthless worship. So what we need is the opposite. We need not just close hearts, but clean hearts. We need to stop making excuses and simply repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The good news is that Jesus is in the business of cleansing hearts. That's why his disciples didn't wash their hands. It wasn't because they didn't care about cleanliness. It wasn't even because they were going against people. It was to get people to think about what really mattered. Not ritually clean hands, but righteously cleansed hearts. What's in your heart? What's coming out of your heart? What do you need Jesus to do?